Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Vail Dance Festival returns to the stage July 29th through August 9th. Conversations on Dance returns for a fifth year to bring audiences behind the curtain and closer to the festival artists they love. Our live podcast recordings have just been announced and will be running from July 30th through August 9th, totaling 10 events. Guests include Justin Peck, Sarah Mearns, Pam Tanowitz, Caroline Shaw, Lauren Lovett, and many others. I will be on maternity leave this summer. These live events will be hosted by Michael with special guest hosts throughout the festival. Tickets are on sale now and can be purchased at veildance.org slash conversations dash on dash dance, or click the link in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the content coming from the Veil Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today, we are happy to welcome back principal guest conductor for the San Francisco Ballet, Ming Luke. We had a fascinating conversation with Ming back in September 2020 in episode 203, where we dive into his background and career as a conductor. Ming has a wealth of knowledge in music and dance history, as he has a background in dance himself and has conducted for ballet all around the world. In light of the 50th anniversary of the Stravinsky Festival, we have Ming on to talk about the relationship between composers and choreographers, dating back to Tchaikovsky and Petipah through to present-day collaborations. Hi, Ming. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you back on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. So yeah. the last time we spoke with you, we were just talking before we started, was in episode 203 in September of 2020. So in the throes of the pandemic, for sure. <laughs> so hopefully we can look at it in a different place now, now that we've been back on stage and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. The ballet just finished their season, so uh, we're recovering. <laughs> yeah, you guys were doing a ton of stuff. I was seeing on Instagram, you were conducting Swan Lake and all of that. I'm sure you're you're like I do that all the time nowadays. Yeah, Thomason's uh, is retiring, you know, artistic director for San Francisco Ballet. So it was a pretty momentous season. But I think the thing that uh, threw us off guard a little bit was the. Um, we thought we'd ease back into performances, I think, mm-hmm. from pandemic, and it basically went from zero to 100. Right. Um, and I think the stamina, at least my stamina, uh, was an issue for the while. So getting back into 100% performing and to every weekend rehearsals and everything was uh, um, a change. Welcome change, but still. Yeah. Can you Can you actually tell us a little bit about that? I think like... Michael and I, as dancers, we obviously are thinking like how the dancers are feeling to go from zero to a hundred, but what is that like for you and, and for the orchestra and how do you kind of like build up that stamina 
if you can, when it's happening so fast, I suppose. <laughs> you know, for us, there's a, the physical aspect is, is not insignificant as well. Right. Right. And so, you know, especially for players, there's a big tendency for injuries. Most musicians actually have recovered from injuries, just like, you know, dancers or whatnot. There's a lot mm-hmm. of rep- stress issues. Um, and if you play an instrument like a violin where your hand and arm is actually wrapped around the instrument, there's a lot of right. twists. So any Carpal little, tunnel. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any, any little, um, you know, unwanted tension is actually um, uh, will create big issues. But for conductors, you know, the same thing. It's, it's, we use batons because batons are more efficient. Um, instead of, you know, using a whole elbow motion or arm motion, you're only using your wrist sometimes for some of the sort of medium or small gestures. So there's an efficiency aspect to that. Um, but when you're conducting something like Swan Lake, which is like a three-hour program, you know, um, the fatigue is, is still an issue. And that's not, that's not small music, you know, that's big, intense, grandiose, uh, wonderful. And so it's hard not to get swept up, but then at the same time, you're sort of expending more energy as well. Sure. Right. I mean, certainly like, I mean, anyone that's gone to see, you know, the symphony, like people, those musicians are sweating. Everyone is involved. You know, it's not like you can just sit there and sort of like placidly like play Rachmaninoff's first piano concerto. Like it is, you know, it is, you know, we, we, we just flat out say, Oh, that's, that's a sweaty one. So well, that's funny. I love that. Yeah. That's we say like, for about, we say puffy, like that's a puffy one, right? <laughs> Michael, like it makes us like yeah. tired or that's funny. Mm-hmm. And then I also wonder too, like for dancers, when, you know, we're tired, we can mark things or kind of like go through the motions. Do you guys have like a similar kind of probably not so much, huh? Uh, we do to some extent, uh, for instance, brass players, especially if you have a dress rehearsal before the concert that evening, um, they might just uh, drop their dynamic. So they, instead of playing fortissimo right. at the grand, you know, uh, 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 climax or whatnot, they'll just sort of drop the dynamic quite a bit. Um, for most orchestral players, obviously, you can't just like stop playing because then everything sort of falls apart or it's not really right. there. But if you're a soloist, like a violinist or a singer, especially singers will often mark, you know, they right. might just not sing or they might just um, uh, almost whisper um, just to save their voices. And for conductors, you, yeah, there is a, (laughs) you can decide to be less um, physically engaged (laughs) um, um, to try to save energy too. And then like, if you're doing, you know, Martin West, the music director at San Francisco Ballet was talking about when he was at English National Ballet, E&B, and they used to do like Swan Lake eight times a week. I mean, the same amount of energy for each one and so he um he he said he learned early sort of the pacing and the phrasing and how to sort of have an overall arc for the entire ballet um instead of just you know every single moment having huge grandiose gestures and Mm -hmm. um, trying to will the music out you know the baton that's so cool I, i just i i this is something i'd never actually considered seriously i mean i guess that's not true we, I remember when francisco our pianist in miami he had to do a triple bill in paris that was tchaikovsky's second piano concerto um oh who's the composer of viscera lowell lieberman's first piano concerto mm-hmm. and uh oh and in the night which is chopin and he was like oh in the night is just like for <laughs> you know he's like chopin is definitely the rest um but you know he just on like every single every oh. uh, yeah, it was just, and, and that triple bill, you know? That's um, huge. That's a huge program. You know, it's funny because most times for concertos, um, you know, if it's an instrument uh, in, that's in the orchestra and is a player in the orchestra, they'll take off the rest of the concert because, you know, a concerto itself, it takes right. so much um, uh, energy. And so to have a triple bill of three major, <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic uh, feat, I should say. Yeah. And he would, and he did it like multiple times. I mean, he's a superhero and he was like the only one too. Like we always wondered that too. We're like, does he have like a cover? Do you have a second cast in case? What happened? Gosh, what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. If you got sick or something. Yeah. Well, Well, (laughs) no, no, no. I was just going to say, we're talking about Swan Lake, which is a great um, segue into what we kind of decided we would chat with you about today because you have such an incredible knowledge 
of not just music and dance, but also some history included in both of those art forms. So we wanted to talk today a little bit about the relationship between composers and choreographers. Um, And eventually we will get to Stravinsky and Balanchine um, kind of to celebrate the Stravinsky Festival, uh, the celebration that's going on right now at New York City Ballet, just for fun. Because, you know, we thought, why not dive into that? Our listeners have been asking for some dance history. So here we are. Um, So let's talk a little bit about those early um, relationships between like, I think, Michael, you wanted to start right with some Petipa and Tchaikovsky and kind of what those earlier um, relationships, music and dance looked like. Yeah, for, for, you know, Tchaikovsky is one of the most influential composers for ballet because he sort of transformed what music was supposed to be for ballet. You know, I think before that, not to knock the composers before that, like make mm-hmm. it sort of our favorite, you know, uh, ballet uh, composers. But, uh, um, you know, the music was more almost like a canvas on top of which the dance is, you know, placed on. And so, you know, the music could be a little less um, developed um, and could be highly fluctuated. I mean, highly uh, manipulated to whatever the dancer's needs are, you know, um, whether it's just music that suddenly is, is uh, 50% faster or slower or whatnot. But right. Tchaikovsky sort of really married the idea of, of an orchestral sound, a very symphonic, sweeping, uh, full um, uh, musical experience with the with the dance too. And so putting them on equal partners. So Putipa and, and, and Tchaikovsky, you know, that, that connection that they had um, is just fantastic. And, uh, you know, as they're in the middle of creating these works, you know, their, their relationship and the way they would talk to each other and make requests for each other were just, were just really wonderful. Like, uh, um, you know, in, in some parts of like Sleeping Beauty or whatnot, they'd actually have, uh, Petipa would have requests for Tchaikovsky to say, you know, it'd be really great if you could do this or this structure um, or these various elements um, in Sleeping Beauty would just really come through. Um, so, you know, for, for, for a lot of us, Tchaikovsky is a phenomenal composer, really having that depth of music um, um, uh, added to ballet is really just a major turning point. And so, you know, like a lot of these collaborations, you're talking about the Stravinsky Festival, you know, Balanchine, Stravinsky, you know, two of the best pairings of, of movement and music, you know, uh, composer and choreographer. Um, their relationship was just was so fantastic and tight, you know, and I think it's because for, for, for both of them, you know, Stravinsky, his big start was in ballet, you know, I think he was like five or something like that. He saw his first ballet and was just completely influenced. Actually, it was Sleeping Beauty, you know, oh, wow. and, um, and he, um, um, you know, was just highly influenced. And then, of course, Firebird was his huge breakout success. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he really got a start in ballet, loved it as an art form and obviously, you know, um, composed many, many works uh, that are very famous. Red Spring, of course, um, caused the huge riots or whatnot. But we forget, I think, sometimes too, that like Balanchine, you know, he had a musical background. He studied music. He made his own piano reductions, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's very different that he had such an intimate knowledge of music. And so I think the two of them really connected together in, um, um, you know, they really felt like they understood each other, you know, um, mm-hmm. for a level. Yeah. So in the in the 19th century with that, um, have been uncommon, you know, the, like Petipa, for instance, or Ivanov, like, did they have a musical background or were they kind of, um, you know, directing merely from their choreographic viewpoint? Yeah, it's, it changed a lot. Sometimes, you know, the choreography would be done absent of music anyway, and they just find out what the music is, right? Um, and so even even with uh, Stravinsky, with uh, the Ballet Russe, that would actually happen at some points, and they're just like, well, this music doesn't just, just doesn't work for this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the relationship between Petipa and, and Tchaikovsky, you know, really um, to that intimate level where they could actually make requests and alter things along the way, I think is a really big change. Um, mm. So, you know, it's just, it's really, um, I think it's, it's, you know, and it's still funny today because we, we still, people still debate, you know, as a conductor working with different companies, you have different viewpoints from different choreographers about what the role of the music is. You know, some people mm-hmm. just ignore the dance whatsoever. You know, I just yeah. want, them to, you know, um, just pick a tempo and it'll be fine. And, you know, for me, I, I tend to like a little bit more intimate connection because, you know, mm-hmm. if you're it's, to me, it's like an opera singer. Like you can tell when an opera singer is running out of breath 
it doesn't right. let the audience know, but you know, the conductor should know. And the same thing too, if you're doing like for Swan Lake, you know, the Fuertes and you can see that, you know, they're, they're falling behind a little bit, you know, maybe that's actually okay because you're trying to drive and push them. But right. if music <laughs> is falling behind, that's death, right? Right. Music is falling behind and they're in the music is slower than what they're doing. Then they're they're They have to make, you can tell when they made the decision, do I just ignore the music and just push through mm-hmm. or am I try to compromise it and try to be on the music. So if a conductor doesn't know that, then yeah, we do actually help and assist and try to actually uh, um, um, to, <laughs> to keep things together and, and try to make the, co- the dancer as comfortable as possible. Um, but you know, there, one of my favorite uh, choreographers, um, uh, Kathy Marston, you know, we were talking about one scene in Snowblind, a new ballet um, mm-hmm. uh, she created on San Francisco Ballet. And she said, you know, I don't actually want you to think about tempo or anything. What I told the dancers is so that I want this emotion to come through. And mm-hmm. for the music, that's what we need to do. We just need that emotion to come through. Mm-hmm. And if those emotions line up, then that's great. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, the, the relationships between musicians and dancers, uh, you know, it really just depends on who, what their backgrounds are, what they're looking for, what they're inspired by. But I mean, when you have people like Patipa and, and Tchaikovsky, um, you know, two of the greats, you know, really working together equals. And then same thing with Balanchine and Stravinsky. I mean, um, you know, there's, uh, I love when Balanchine talks about the idea that, you know, he didn't want to distract from the music. He wants to reflect the music, right? Right. And so sometimes he's like, the choreography is too much. You know, that's just way too much. You want something that's a little bit leaner and really, really represents the music. And then on the flip side, Stravinsky would go to Balanchine and say, you know what? Your choreography, you know, helps me like understand the music you know mm-hmm. it's, it's just it's absolutely amazing how well they're paired together you know visually and orally yeah right i wonder how much information we have about um the way the process worked in terms of tchaikovsky and pedipod together how many changes were made like in real time on stage you know right before the premiere of a production maybe even afterwards do we have any indications of that especially in such a collaborative process you would think maybe that might be the case, or maybe was it just like cut and dry? Here's what Tchaikovsky gave us. That's the music. <laughs> no, they were they were constantly adjusting. I mean, um, you know, the the fun thing is that you have in letters and notes and everything um, the the actual um, adjustments and, and requirements and, and whatnot. But you know, um, just like most composers nowadays that are writing for ballet, you'll you'll get a list of what the scenes are, what the various scenarios are what the sort of um, the arc of the, of the ballet is. And so when, um, you know, when that's, then the composer creates the music on that. Um, and so that's, I think, what, where Tchaikovsky started. But then as they go through back and forth, they actually start to say, hey, you know what? Actually, I'm going to use this piece over here. <laughs> I'm going to right. actually alter this ending. And then, you know, for things, especially like Swan Lake, you know, there's, there's multiple, obviously, arrangements and, and um, alterations that happen to it depending on who's actually setting it on top of Padipa's uh, um, original. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's that story. I forget which direction this was in, but, you know, Tchaikovsky Padada, originally written for Swan Lake. Um, but I, I I don't remember if that was, was it the original music or it was something that was added later when a ballerina was dissatisfied with what Tchaikovsky composed. So he was like, yeah. okay, I'll make you another yeah. Padada. Yeah, so exactly. So they just got excerpted out completely, you know, uh, something else was replaced and, and it became its own ballet, you know, which is, it's just, it's fantastic. Yeah. Right. Do we know how Balanchine became aware of that extra bit of music that was hiding that gem? For, uh, for Tchaikovsky Potida, sorry. Don't, I actually don't. Hmm. You know, there's this fun, there's this fun story that's, it could be apocryphal. I mean, it could just be made up, but um, uh, for Symphony in C um, that somebody suggested that he actually write, uh, uh, he choreograph a work to Symphony in C, but he didn't realize that they were talking about the Stravinsky. Um, Uh So that's how the Bizet, because the Bizet was just discovered around that time. They're just like, oh, okay. So I'm, this is, this must be what people are talking about. And it was originally, you know, that's why uh, um, Symphony C uh, um, is the Bizet, not the Stravinsky. So, right. So funny. Yeah, and Bizet was ex- incredibly young when he wrote Symphony in C. Oh yeah, he was. It was. It was annoying. It was like he was like seventeen or something. I like think that. he was seventeen. No. <laughs> yeah, 
and it's just and it's it's fantastic right mm-hmm. but you know there's so many composers that you know like Mendelssohn he was 17 when he wrote Midsummer Night's Dream and, and um but he was also one of those geniuses that also had a incredible means they had a professional orchestra at their house literally every single week so that he and his uh, siblings <laughs> his sister Fanny could um, compose for them and so there are these amazing string symphonies of Mendelssohn that were written when he was a teenager and they're just fantastic they're just fantastic so right wow yeah. that's so cool but that access access is everything yeah wow exactly. yeah. And then you have Berlioz who didn't you know didn't have anything but like I think he had a broken guitar but he still had a mind that was amazing as a composer so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so uh were what were what was the general vibe maybe pre uh, you could tell us pre and post tchaikovsky amongst composers would it, would is that would that have been like a lesser um a lesser thing to to be participating in the ballet you know it's like oh i got to compose this ballet i'll give give, give my worst <laughs> You know, I, you know, it's 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 funny because I think each each uh, country generally has a different order of what they uh, they um, which is which is more important, like ballet, right. opera versus symphony. Right, right. You know, and so you know, in Russia, obviously, ballet is is one of the top things, right? Um, they have ballerinas, you know, handing out awards because, of course, you'd have a celebrity handing out like, let's have a ballerina, right. um, and you know, it's like. Uh, ballet, chess, etc. Um, but you know, I don't think for composers. Um, first of all, composers throughout the eras, you know, they're they're just thankful for work. Right. <laughs> so that they necessarily resent it. But uh, um, you know, I think that uh, it's not necessarily you're you're creating music to be of service, and so I think that. Um, Tchaikovsky really turned the tables to see how the music could be of service instead of just providing a beat, right? right. Instead of just providing a beat and sort of a general background, like a background color, it was like an entire painting in, in which that, you know, like people are actually um, uh, choreographing to. And so I don't necessarily think that they would resent it or not be, not be engaged by it. Um, just like, you know, if you're, if you're a bar pianist like Brahms was, um, you know, all the stuff that he used to play in the bars and the brothels, um, you know, have actually ended up influencing a lot of his other music. And so it was, I think, really uh, um, influential. F- I mean, like, I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I still think it would be fun. I mean, like, I would love to compose for about it. I'm not a composer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, Funny, though, I can see, like, that's a great question because I can see also, com- I don't know, but you, I could imagine a composer being like, oh, I have to work with someone who's going to give me direction on things to do instead of just, like, realizing my specific vision. So I can see how it, it takes probably a special personalities to work together in that way and yeah. be willing to collaborate. Yeah. You know, uh, Bernstein mentioned the first time that he composed for film, that his heart was destroyed because, you know, on the floor, because they just, they needed to cut it up and, you know, say, Hey, you know, right. like scene is actually three, four minutes shorter. So we're just going to take some of this music, add some of this music and whatnot. And he, he, but he completely understood. He said, you know, like, I really understand that this is, this is what's needed, but I didn't create this. It was really terrifying. And um, Prokofiev, on the other hand, you know, there was a work of his that was created for, that w- the music was used for film, but they respected him so much that they just altered the film to fit the music. Wow. Right? Oh, wow. You never hear, which you never hear. Um, okay. and, um, yeah. I have a question because is, was he a, a picky guy? Is that, like, <laughs> I mean, is that what? Out of respect or fear, just because I know, um, you know, the story of Prodigal Son is that he hated it, and ba- that's why Balanchine never uh, made another ballet to his work, um, and yeah, complained you know, about him later through life. He was a little bit of a, um, you know, it's funny because he had a relatively hard time. Um, I mean, like like most of the Russians do with government, right? I mean, like that's the whole thing you hear about Shostakovich, Prokofiev. Um, you know, Balanchine and obviously Stravinsky, they left Russia, right? And right. so meeting up in Paris and everything. So, you know, Prokofiev was a hard, he was like a lot of those really big prodigies. He was sort of an enfant terrible. He was, he was very well regarded, but he also had a very inflated uh, sense of self, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that he got beaten down quite a bit Um because uh, um, he was trying to navigate the politics and was successful sometimes and really wasn't other times. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a little, yeah, I think that composers can be very temperamental. Um, you, you just depends on the person, whether they're accommodating or not. You know, I mean, technically, right, Stravinsky and, and Bal- Balanchine only commissioned Stravinsky like three or four times, right? I think it's four right. technically. But he, he used, obviously, his music, which pre-existing music all the time. But for yeah. Agon, you know, Balanchine actually went to Stravinsky and said, hey, um, can we just have a little bit more music here? You know, it'd be really great to extend this. And uh, instead of reacting negatively to it, Stravinsky, well, you know, he slightly negatively, but he was just like, you tell me literally how many seconds I will comp- compose for you exactly that amount, right? Isn't there a video of this? It's, it's super cute. It's, it's yeah. so charming. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's really fun because like, again, he didn't say, no, you can't, you know, you're just going right. to have to deal with it. He just basically uh, um, was flexible enough. And again, you know, their admiration mm-hmm. for each other is just, just um, unparalleled, so. Mm-hmm. Right. It's he's just being cheeky. You know, he's like, okay, tell me how much you want. And then I think Balanchine's like, okay, two minutes, 20 seconds. He's like, are you sure it's not 19? <laughs> I'm going to make it, you know, or they, they start like sort of bargaining and it's, um, it's, it's a fun thing to see. Um, <laughs> but let's talk, let's go back in the wake of the Tchaikovsky Pitapa, um, collaborative, um, artistic output. Would you say that that changed things? I mean, because obviously Stravinsky and Balanchine, that's a little further down the line. So like after Tchaikovsky, you're getting into, um, you know, Ballet Russe time a couple decades later. Like what was the what were the working relationships between um, choreographers and composers like immediately following? Or was it kind of just sim- similar to how it had been? Yeah. You know, it's so funny because like we have the Stravinsky Balanchine collaborations, but before that, it's still Stravinsky, right? Because like Ballet Russe was, you know, like uh, um, um, was the was where Stravinsky got that started. You know, Prokofiev was mm-hmm. like all the French composers were writing for them. But uh, um, right. right of spring, the so called they call it the like the Russian period for Stravinsky, um, where he was doing things based off of Russian folklore and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but those works um, with with like the orchestration, like Rimsky Korsakov, like this really huge, lush mm-hmm. uh, orchestras. But if you think about the orchestra size, you know, those are huge, huge orchestras. Right of Spring is one of the largest orchestras you could possibly assemble, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Firebird 2, um, you know, it's just, it's really incredibly immense. But, you know, I think that um, there are stories about some of the choreography for Right of Spring that it were what we were talking about before, where they actually had choreographed it before they could hear the music. Mm-hmm. And like, it just, it doesn't work. Right. Right. And you can see that sometimes too. Uh, um, um, you know, um, Petrushka, there are sections that are just, um, some of the original choreography is really interesting because it makes no reflection on the complexities of the music, you know, right. It's like multimedia, uh, um, um, multi, uh, um, uh, time signature section, mm-hmm. uh, multimeter section. And the choreography is just them walking in a circle, you know, right. and it's like all these really interesting, complex uh, um, uh, beats and, you know, that are distorted and whatnot. And I don't think there was an awareness at the time. And so, you know, that, that collaboration, I think that, um, you know, composers and the dance, it depends on the backgrounds of those people, how deep you can get into the music, you know? Right. And, you know, when you hear about all these musicians talking about Balanchine's choreography, you know, they say things like, well, it helps me understand the music more, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and really see how beneficial it is for them to be on the same page, to be collegial, and also have the deepest admiration for each other, but then also have enough of a background in each other's art forms, right? Mm-hmm. right. In fact, Balanchine had such a musical background that, uh, you know, that Stravinsky loved ballet so much. Um, you know, I think that created those opportunities for these works that are just like, you know, mind blowing that are just so um, uh, famous for, for, for all the reasons that we think of just like, you know, whether it's the neoclassical, like the spiky music of Stravinsky, mm-hmm. you wouldn't just like put on his background, but you see the ballet and you're like, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Right. It's, it's perfect for this. And the ballet right, right, right. is perfect for the movement. So I think that during that period of time, when you had these huge symphonic works, Right. This is, I mean, like, it's one of the richest time periods for orchestral music because you have these great masterworks being created, whether it's in the French school, like all French schools or, you know, like uh, Stravinsky uh, breaking things open. You, and you still have people like Puccini that are writing very heavily romantic stuff at the same mm-hmm. time. 
um, I think that it really felt like, you know, people are either creating choreography and then putting it on the music or just hearing the music and just trying to add on to it. And so there, it depends, you know, like I don't think there is as much of a deep collaboration because it would depend on the people that were involved. Yeah. Right. I think that's so interesting that you brought up um, Petrushka. I just had never even considered that, that act like, you know, um, the original version that you see in some incarnation, like ballet theater has done it within the past 20 years, I guess. I don't know how recent I saw it when I was a kid here, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, you're totally right. It's just like, it's very like decorative and not necessarily immersed in the music and then that just gave me like i was like i can't believe like nobody at new york city ballet has ever tried to like i wonder why balancing wouldn't have touched it i mean i guess you know he of course he says you know it's famous i guess for allegedly not liking stories but how many story ballets did he do you know and like and obviously and always so well so i would just i would be so curious to know like if he just why he didn't want to do that but um stayed away from the russian period because you know with stravinsky we say there's three periods we have the mm-hmm. Russian period, we have the neoclass- neoclassical period, right, which is where Apollo, you know, um, Orpheus, etc., you know, come and play. Um, and then um, we have the serial period, which is the 12 tone, um, very um, right. um, Schoenberg, you know, style music where every single note is completely equal. So there's no gravitation to some key or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But as a result, the music can be a pretty, you know, um, it's depending on who composes it, it can be um, very difficult to compose something that actually has um, a lot of depth to it. Right. Right. Um, it's, that's more than an academic exercise, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so um, it's funny, like you said, you know, like, you know, Balanchine's um, the ballets that he did were from the last two periods, but not from, you know, the original, um, uh, the Russian period. Yeah. Yeah. That's I wonder, so, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I just, I used to say, yeah, now now you said Petrushka, and but I'm thinking, okay, of course, obviously he didn't do Rite of Spring and then he didn't do Lenos. And yeah, that's all from that early period, right? Like I wonder, I wonder since he respected music so much and often would say, you know, he that's why he doesn't compose to Beethoven or Mozart or infrequently to Mozart and then Bach, you know, only Concerto Barocco. Uh, I wonder if he just thought that that music was meant, even though it was composed for ballet, maybe he just wanted you to go hear it in a concert hall. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it could be. You know, that's what, uh, um, you know, Concerto Baroque, I mean, it's just, it's just a fantastic work because it's, you know, like in the 70s. And so the style of playing for um, sort of Baroque music is different nowadays. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's fantastic for musicians because like it's a throwback to a completely different way of approaching music. Interesting. Uh, early music, right? Um, Andrew Lyndon has his, his great talk about it. It's just, he's, he's just, he's just like, yeah, it's just like a snapshot of the musical um, approach to early music at the time. And nowadays, you know, everything is really um, sort of light and um, uh, uh, a little bit more virtuosic. And back then in the 70s, a lot of Baroque music was really heavy. It's mm-hmm. like Stokowski and like use huge orchestras or huge strings playing in a romantic style. And so um, specifically the tempi for that are from the 70s, right? It's just a very interesting um, um, piece of its era, you know, of its time right. Is that mostly how that's notated for you guys to know to play it like that? Is it mostly in the tempi or is there also other notations about like you're saying that kind of the dynamics of the way you're playing? Oh, it's, it's almost everything, you know? And so the thing is that it's not, it's not notated in the music. And the hard part about Baroque music is that there are a lot of different approaches and styles to it. And so there are entire, obviously, um, um, ensembles that are dedicated to just trying to figure out exactly what the type of sounds are or the, the, the style in which they approach the music. Because, you know, back in Bach's time, he, they were composing things almost every single week, if not like, you know, every single day. And so right. musicians would just get the music in front of them for the concert and just be like, you know, okay, let's just do this. But nowadays, because we play in so many different, you know, like hundreds music that ranges obviously hundreds of years, that mm-hmm. each of the styles um, in general, there's a more romantic style that most musicians play. And so when we have a piece by Bach or Handel or some of the early composers like Lully, um, you actually have to spend quite a bit of rehearsal time actually saying, no, for this, we want to make this note shorter. We want this to be lighter. We're going to put a little bit more accent here. We want to have a little bit more breath in the bow or speed or whatnot. And if you're doing something like that's in the style of the 70s, that's much more full sound. 
you, I mean, like, you know, with City Ballet and whatnot, they would have, well, obviously, because they do it so often that they don't have to talk about it. But if they went to a different, um, uh, besides a tempi, you'd actually have to instruct the orchestra in the stylistic uh, traits specific right. to that piece. Sounds like ballet. It's like going from Swan Lake to Balanchine to Justin Peck or whatever, right? There's, mm-hmm. It's an era, it's a snapshot in time, and there's like a change through there. When we're talking about Stravinsky, I'm wondering, it's making me think a little bit about like how some of Balanchine's works were initially um, not well received. Maybe they were too modern and people didn't like them. And then, of course, they became absolute classics and treasures that we still perform today. What was his, and he has these three eras you're talking about. What was the reception on his work initially? Because it is neoclassical. It's probably a little more modern for the time. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, and this is, it's like we we're mentioning, it's just such an explosion of different styles at the time, because you really, I mean, like if you have Debussy, uh, Ravel, Stravinsky, you know, Puccini, I mean, like they couldn't be more different in terms of, of styles of music, but Stravinsky, you know, um, um, for the Ballet Russe, you know, Firebird was was a big success. And the Rite of Spring, which was only three years later, um, was is famous for causing riots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, there's, a, there's some research to see, you know, that says that it wasn't quite a riot. And some people say it was actually like this huge uh, scandal and whatnot. Um, but, you know, some of the stories like the second act had to have police there. So people didn't, um, you know. Um, actually, you know, riot or destroy things. Um, one of the stories was that Claude Monteux, who was a conductor for Rite of Spring, um, they couldn't, um, the music was over, the, the shouting and jeering was so loud that the dancers couldn't hear the music. And oh, wow. so people were, sh- people were shouting the counts from the side of the stage so that the dancers could try to, you know, figure out where they were. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Stravinsky ended up hating it for, not, not, not that he hated the music, but what ended up happening is that after Rite of Spring, Everybody loved like a good you know, gossip and story and whatnot. And so they would just compare to his earlier works. And they said, well, it's, it's, it's fun and it's, it's, you know, groundbreaking and stuff, but it wasn't as exciting as Rite of Spring, right? <laughs> they got really annoyed. He's just like, everybody keeps on talking about these, you know, like these works that caused riots and whatnot. But I, um, you know, uh, um, I want them just to, you know, move on from that. <laughs> like, compose right. um, Funny. Uh, yeah, Stravinsky was, was was really one of the most influential, you know, people, I think even in 1998 or something like that, I just read this recently, um, like Time Magazine said, you know, approaching 2000, um, the year 2000, that Stravinsky was one of the 100 most influential people, you know, of all time during that, you know, century. Um, yeah, I mean, a fantastic, he used to have a little notebook by his bed, he would, you know, dream some music and he'd write down the melody when he woke up. Mm. Really interesting guy. Right. Taking care of your skin is an important part of your image, and yet so many don't invest in healthy skincare. Meet Menagee. Made in the USA, our products are proven problem solvers and are used by many dancers, as well as those who simply want to have healthy skin and look their very best, whether on stage or off. Formulated with natural botanicals and texture-improving ingredients, our professional-grade skincare and cosmetics are made to withstand hot stage lighting and yet feel and look natural on your skin. Simple to use, our liquid powder shine eliminator keeps skin 100% shine-free, minimizes the appearance of large pores, and delivers uber moisture. Our urban camouflage vegan stick concealers cover topical imperfections like dark under-eye circles and skin discoloration and can be used for dramatic contour application too. Our HDPV anti-shine pressed powders deliver excellent natural-looking coverage to even out skin tone and keep you looking fabulous. Go to www.menskincare.com that's men's skincare with one S and use code COD30 to receive 30% savings on all individual products. Your skin will thank you. The 10th annual Lake Tahoe Dance Festival will be taking place this summer from July 27th through the 29th at venues in Tahoe City in Truckee, California for in-person audiences. This summer, the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival includes works by George Balanchine, Eric Hawkins, Constantine Becker, and more. Festival artists include Friends of the Pod, Ashley Bowder, Adrian Danchin Waring, Lloyd Knight, and Stephen Hanna. The festival begins on Wednesday, July 27th at 5 p.m. with the 10th Anniversary Gala Opening Night Celebration, where audiences will enjoy a silent auction with food and wine. 
The festival's main stage performances continue on July 28th at 6 p.m. in Tahoe City and on July 29th at 6 p.m. on West End Beach, Truckee, California. Tickets on sale now at laketahoedancefestival.org or click the link in the description of this episode. I wonder too, because like for dancers, dancing Stravinsky can be very complex because of the different counts and the structure of the music. So it's a, it's a fun challenge, but it's certainly like a real a, a challenge. And is that kind of the same for the orchestra or is that just something that you guys kind of deal with so often and it's on a page in well, front of you, you have your cheat sheet a little bit. We have, we have our cheat sheet. We have the music in front of us. And that's one of the things that always astounds me because, you know, pieces like Patricia or, or Rite of Spring are so complex but to have it in your heads, right? You know, um, we, your Pasakoff with San Francisco Ballet um, did our last version of Friday Spring. And there's this one section where he wants everybody with a stick to mimic the, um, this one rhythm that happens. You know, like the, the trumpets and, and the orchestra just has this, um, this rhythm that is not replicated. So there's, there's no pattern to it. And my favorite part is on stage and in the pit, like there's always people that mess it up. Like they're like, you're supposed uh. to do two, but they go da 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 crap da da. <laughs> <laughs> and so during this, because on stage, you know, Yuri had them actually tapping the stage with the same rhythm. Da 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 da. Panic. You'd hear a crap from either the orchestra or the yeah. dancers. You know, during rehearsal, you're just like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> But, um, you know, that's part of the point, you know, like, it's just like this, this seemingly random, but very, uh, um, uh, um, that music is incredible. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really a, a fantastic work. You know, the first bassoon solo is this really high note. It's supposed to be like the birth. Um, um, and nowadays it's used as an audition piece for, for bassoons because it's a really difficult, but because everybody practices so much and it's, it's, they make it sound beautiful. And Stravinsky as you know, like uh, towards, uh, you know, the end of his life and stuff, he's just like, I wish I made it higher because everybody just plays <laughs> so well now. And it's not supposed to sound nice, you know? And so, yeah, but um, it really is. I mean, right of spring is what, like 1913? I mean, Puccini in 1940s wrote like Turandot, you know, like the most uh-huh. romantic, you know, sweet sounding, um, you know, opera. Um, it's just a crazy time at that time. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what's so interesting about Balanchine and Stravinsky's relationship is that, or something we wanted to to kind of see if we could get, glean some extra knowledge about is that, you know, like you mentioned, he only did a few commissions, like actual commissions, you know, Apollo, Orpheus. Wait, it was Apollo even wasn't, was ba- that was originally with bound like, or was that? No, I- that yeah, no, that's, um, I don't think he commissioned that. That was the first. Right. He didn't commission it. It was just the first time they got to really work together. He did Chante Rossignol. Rossignol. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah. Song of the Nightingale. But no. but Stravinsky didn't work with him on it. Yeah. That was that was at the Ballet Russe. And um, mm-hmm. the Chante Rossignol is, is music from an opera. It was the first opera that Stravinsky um, mm-hmm. composed. And then they excerpted music out of that. Uh, it was right. just Rossignol. And then the Chante Rossignol is the, um, the orchestral like a little sweet. Right. But who was the original Apollo choreographer? I don't, I can't remember. Obviously it wasn't as good as Balanchine's. <laughs> Didn't make the cut. Um, but that yeah. was the first time they actually got to work together. And what was their, well, now I'm getting off track. I, I, I missed my, my prior question. My first question was going to be what, what makes it interesting to me is that Balanchine was able to go back into these, uh, orchest- orchestral works that he loved, um, you know, the violin concerto, um, later on, somebody in three movements, or, th- or, you know, things like that, that were not made for ballet, but he ostensibly could have had a conversation with Stravinsky about these works, and, and they could have gone into it together. But do we know anything about that? Like, for symphony and three movements, it's such a complex work. Like, did he, do we think that they had conversations during Stravinsky's life about these works? You know, I, I'm, I'm sure they did, but I think the, the, the reason why Stravinsky admired Balanchine so much is that he just had a natural, maybe because of his music background or just because it's brilliant, um, he would have a natural way of looking at the music, of hearing the music, 
and then gleaning from it all the things that musicians do to the music, right? Like we sit there and we, we look at structure from the very first thing, right? If you're looking at a Mozart symphony, there's a inherent structures that are, that are probably going to be like a sonata like reform or whatever. And when Stravinsky was doing his neoclassical period, you know, like all these dances actually have very specific forms and everything. But it's like Balanchine understood all of this and he understood where the phrasings are specifically from like a musician's point of view. And so, you know, um, I think that's why musicians love, I mean, Balanchine so much too. Um, not only that he, you know, um, tried to treat the music as, as, it's, as a whole, you know, not cutting up too much um, and keeping the tempos as they are, but mm -hmm. that the choreography really matched sort of the character and the style and the, the inherent structures within the music that we, we sit there and work on, right? And so like when we're looking, we're looking at a new piece or as, as a conductor, when I'm looking at a new piece, you know, you sit, sit there analyzing it in various ways, right? You sit there harmonically, phrase-wise, instrumentation or whatnot. And then when you see choreography that seems to say, oh, you know, that looks, that's fantastic. How, how did that work? You know, I mean, it's just, um, it's just, it's really, I think, brilliant. You know, um, there's, it's just like he had a deeper understanding of the music um, that he was able to create um, gestures and movements that just sort of emphasize and brought those out. You know, right. like Bernstein, when he was conducting, he would say, yeah, you know, this, this, this Beethoven symphony is amazing and nobody understands it because, you know, the whole point is that back in the time of Beethoven, they are, all were expecting a certain structure. And so Beethoven um, deliberately screws up that structure. So that's why right. audiences would have understood. But today's audiences, you know, they listen to everything. So they don't, they're not aware of that structure. Mm -hmm. And so Bernstein would take time to actually emphasize those things. So it'd be more apparent, right? right. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what it feels like with Balanchine. It's just like he has such a deep understanding of the music that those characteristics that make the music special or make it like brilliant or whatnot, he was able to sort of emphasize those, match those, reflect that. And so what you're seeing really is a depiction of the music itself, right? Mm -hmm. From a deeper level than, than um, uh, sometimes you might see, like we were talking about with Petrushka, where they walk around in a circle, but the music's doing all this other random stuff. You're like, wait, right. it's not connected at all, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. It's, I love like, it's um, like in Symphony Three Movements, I read this somewhere, I don't remember where, so we'll have to fact check this, but <laughs> that originally the, the second movement had been, uh, Stravinsky had started writing it as a possible um, like uh, accompaniment to the movie Song of Bernadette. And it would be when Bernadette sees a vision of Mary, Virgin Mary. And so like, when you listen to that Adagio now, it's like you have that, like I can picture that, sort of like reverent moment. And it's like, it's not, of course, Balanchine doesn't make anything literal, but it, it has that sort of like, you you could have a feeling of um, like a revelation, like a, a, you know, or something religious there. Yeah. You know, I think that's, you know, like they say with Serenade, right. You know, they, they say with, um, that Balanchine's like, there's no story. There's no story. It's just, you right. know, things, but there are certain things that you're just like, but that, that clearly just evokes this, right? Mm -hmm. And and or some sort of gestures that, and, and I think that's the the part that is just so cool about when you have Stravinsky. It's like, you know, if if there's a story behind it, sometimes you know he has hidden motivations for what's the rationale for the compositions or whatnot. But then you have Balanchine that sort of brings that out, mm -hmm. you know, say like, oh, this, you know, like there's the lyricism there or the sweetness there. You know, I think that, um, you know, that's just that's part of the fun, about, you know, because again, music is more than just the notes on the rhythm. So we tell this to the musicians all the time. It's like, you, our job is to figure out what is the heart of the piece and to emphasize and bring those things out, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not enough just to play the notes and the, and the rhythms itself. It's just like those go towards something. So if you have right. something like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, pa 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 pa, you know, it's really aggressive, you know, mm -hmm. and that sort of monomania of this, the one theme that is repeated 200 times, you know, <laughs> and if you just have lackadaisical performance, like, you know, it could be very trite, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so when you have music of Stravinsky, like Firebird is all about the orchestration, extending the techniques, you know, the sort of um, the storytelling that happens within the ballet, you know, the, um, the, um, when you have the infernal dance, right towards the end, you have that um, incredible brass and this driving timpani and basses that are just uh, um, sort of um, on this rhythm that just is insistent. You know, like 
just playing the music by itself, you can say, okay, that's, that's what it is. But if you have an idea of the story behind it, it's amazing. Right. Mm. Right. And, um, like the shrieks of the firebird are written into the music. Right. And mm. you can, and it's funny because you can talk to orchestras and say, no, you know, that shriek isn't like, it's a little too shrill. It needs to have like power because it's in control at that time. You know, you know, like we actually have conversations about that, but then when Stravinsky gets to the neoclassical period, everything's based off a of structure. Right. And so your goal is to try to portray the structure in as clear a way as possible to make sure that those, you know, like the architecture of the piece is really important. Um, or like you're saying for Concerto Barocco, I mean, like, you know, the style of the music is very different. We have to spend a lot of time beyond just the notes and rhythms. That's right. interesting hearing about um, talking about Stravinsky with this, the structure It kind of makes me think of the dance, frankly, right? There's no, like in Symphony 3 movements, there's no set, there's no costumes, you know, are very limited costumes. It's very, you know, taken down to just the bare minimum. And so is that something that you feel is then reflected in the dance in the same way, like the orchestra is trying to get the same point across as the dance in, in that way? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, 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 very much. You know, it's just, and I love watching ballet masters, um, you know, uh, in rehearsal because sometimes they'll say very similar things that we say to orchestras. You know, they'll say, you know, all the movements are right at the right time, but it's the quality of it that's missing right now, right? Right. And it's just like, you know, like you're, you're either, if it's a story, like this is your motivation for this. So it's the, the developer has, you know, there, there has to be some motivation intention. behind it. There's some intention behind it. And yeah. so, yeah. And so for, for us, it's, it's exactly the same thing, you know. When you were talking about that, I was actually thinking that, that like when you see a dancer that has beautiful technique, you look at it and you're like, oh, I can appreciate that the steps are happening at the right time and well executed. But then if it doesn't have that intention behind it or that, you know, through line that brings it all together, it's just like, oh, okay, that's nice. You know, like you were saying with, with the music that it just, it's, it's just so similar, the art forms. And it's cool right. to hear you talk about things that yeah. we talk about all the time too. I, I, well, you know, I guess I want to shift. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say for Swan Lake, for instance, obviously white swan, black swan, you know, you talk about the character differences, right? But the violin soloist actually has two different solos, right? And so you have the white swan, has a beautiful violence, and then black swan is a completely different character. You know, mm -hmm. and so for the violinists, they actually have that same transformation and difference of approach to their solos, because that's cool. also, you know, um, um, you know, their job too, you know. Sure. Right. Huh, that's that. so fun to think of. I never would have never put that together. It. Yeah. You know, now that we've gone through kind of these two super iconic um, choreographer-composer relationships, I just wanted to have, I guess, a look into what that model is like today. Um you know, I guess I'm thinking like Justin Peck has worked a lot with Sufjan Stevens. Um, and you have Marsden you brought up, which I was thinking too. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious, has, has that dynamic shifted? Do we think in the 21st century, um, like, or like the collaborative methods, like what, what are some factors of, in today's modern world that might change things from how Tchaikovsky and Petapal worked, for instance? I think that a lot, you know, obviously there's, there's music that's been, uh, it's used for ballet that's a set work like we were talking about and then music that's composed uh, specifically for uh, for for new ballets or whatnot but you know nowadays I think that there is a really wonderful connection between uh, um, uh, composers and, and choreographers you know really sort of that intimate level where they're talking about sort of the structures um, the intent behind the music you know um, speaking of Lola you know for his Frankenstein um, um, we did, uh, there's this one scene, a gypsy scene, a tavern scene, and, um, you know, the music just wasn't correct, right? Mm -hmm. and so he was asked just to compose a completely new scene and say, no, this needs to be more in the style of Carmen. And Lowell's just like, okay, sounds great. Well, let me, let me, you guys want something that sounds like Carmen and that has a sort of an energy to it. Right. Um, you know, that's, that'd be, that's exactly what I'll do. Um, and, you know, Sufjan Stevens, you know, like we did a um, Encountance of Kings. We we just recently mm -hmm. did a few years ago, mm -hmm. and you know that was orchestrated um, uh, for the orchestra to play, and it's just it's just a fantastic work. But you know the musicians, there's this one nasty trumpet solo, and the, our, the trumpet player is just like, yeah, this is this is great, but you know this is this is pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
But, you know, I think that it, it, it just depends. You know, there's what I'm seeing like a lot nowadays is a lot of composers. I mean, sorry, a lot of choreographers are, have a lot of different influences because we listen to Bach. We listen to Sufjan Stevens. We listen to, you know, mm-hmm. Metallica. We listen to, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, Beatles or whatnot. There, there's a lot of mixing of genres, you know. Right. And um, there are still obviously the sort of uh, large realms of either minimalistic music and people just compose on top of that or these uh, um, uh, more contemporary music that people are sort of adapting for um, the stage and orchestras to play. But this idea of these this, this combinations of a lot of things um, is, is, is kind of fun, you know? It sort of represents where we are, I think, musically and as a culture, because we have so many different, we have the luxury of being able to listen to music from so many different eras, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And I just wonder from the pit, what is, what are their musicians really enjoying and you enjoying conducting right now? Do you love to hop back in time and go to Tchaikovsky? Are you loving some Stravinsky or do you like these kind of new commissions? Is that something that's especially interesting to you? For me, new commissions are always fun because when you have new music, you know, it's like it's you're seeing it for the first time and you get to explore. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're approaching pieces like Tchaikovsky, you know, it's the orchestrations are so gorgeous. The melodies are so amazing. The range of, of, of emotions, of color, of dynamics, everything. You know, the orchestra, you know, this is uh, San Francisco Ballet just finished one, like, so um, that was the last program for the season um, until next season. And the orchestra has been looking forward to that forever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they absolutely love it. It's just a fantastic, fantastic score. It's like, you know, Prokofiev, the ballets for Prokofiev, you know, Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's just mm-hmm. one of the favorite. Cinderella, right? Um, uh, it's just fantastic works. Um, so in the orchestra, sometimes minimalistic music, if we're doing the same thing for like 30 minutes in a row, it gets, it's, there's, a, there's a mental fatigue that's there, right? And I remember this one work had so many mixed meter and you're just intently counting the entire right. time. And I'm sure it's the same with dance too. If you're just like focusing on counting, 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 then the sort of musicianship, the you know, the artistic aspect is a little harder to mm-hmm. do. And so that was a very hard uh, thing to connect. But I mean, like, it's also really fun. I don't think I there's there's not many times where I don't enjoy conducting, right? Um, but um, yeah, I know there's certainly music that we enjoy for different reasons, and there's mm-hmm. certainly music that's a little less uh, intense, right? Um, yeah. 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 All right. That's a political thing. Well, was... <laughs> <laughs> we love everybody. We love everybody. Okay. everybody. No, but that's, I mean, no, that makes I, sense. I mean, it's the same for dance, you know? Right. Yeah. You get to go through all these different musical journeys mm-hmm. um, as part of what makes conducting ballet exciting, I imagine. So, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like for ballet, especially because you have different casts and everybody's different on. Like the, the physical requirements for the dancers are so great that, you know, there are going to be slight dif- dif- uh, uh, differences from night to night. That's for what for us is really exciting because mm-hmm. sometimes you get in a symphony hall, for instance, the idea from some musicians that you just want to set a certain version of a performance of the music and just kind of do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's less spontaneity. There's less sort of in the moment, you know, musicianship and phrasing or things um, are a little, I wouldn't call it stale, but it's a little less, uh, it's a little uh, predictable. Um, right. Especially if you have like eight of those things in a row and you just want to do the same thing every single time. It just, right. to me, it's not as invigorating as if you're, you know, on stage and you have different people that are requiring different tempi that are requiring different phrasings, you know, or even the same people that are just saying, you hey, know, second time, the, um, the first, any nerves I might have had in the first performance are gone. So the tempi change, yeah. you know. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, like ballet conducting is, is, is fantastic because, you know, um, that spontaneity is there. And uh, when things really line up, when things just match and everything goes well, it's just it's so thrilling, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I saw that you posted recently about uh, Sasha DeSola, who's a friend of the pod. We had her on and um, she was doing um, Swan Lake, doing Odetto Deal. And you posted something so lovely that was like. I remember when you joined the company, I knew you would, you know, were capable of this or something so nice like that. And so I wonder what that also means for you as a conductor to kind of watch these dancers really grow and then be to be able to work. Of course, in Odetto Deal, you work with them closely. You discuss these tempos like you're talking about. So what does that kind of like mean to you? 
Oh, it's so fantastic. You know, it, it, the hard part, obviously, about dance is that the careers are shorter than musicians, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, when, when I started guesting with, with San Francisco, um, uh, Sasha was core member, but she always is so, I mean, she's like a workaholic. I mean, she just mm-hmm. really is in it all the time and trying to grow and to develop and explore and everything. And so, you know, I was there, um, uh, she was injured for a little while and I remember I was conducting and, you know, all of us felt just like, you know, horrified. And um, when she was first promoted to soloist and then promoted to the principal. And so this was her first Swan Lake, you know, even though she's actually been principal for a while, you know, we've mm-hmm. many other ballets and whatnot, but the excitement that she has, you know, obviously for one of the greatest works of in ballet and the amount of research and the preparation she did, the process became really fun because she said, she would just say, listen, I just want to try this. I want, I would love this. This is what I'm going for. This is what I'm going to try to do. I know it's a slight deviation, but let's see how it works. And so, um, you know, being part of that process in the studios as we're experimenting, figuring out how things work, you know, obviously the Fuetes, everybody does completely different. Some people do like one, one, two, some people just do all two, some people do all ones, you know, whatever, but you know, everybody was trying to figure out their own version of it. And for her, she was like, it took her, I think it was like one week beforehand where she's like, no, this is what I'm going to do. Well, she's a wild turner. So I'm sure she did something wild out there. She did straight singles the entire time, the entire time singles. But rock solid, I'll betcha. Completely rock solid. But it's also, I mean, like, it's like, I imagine the, the, the power, it's not the power, but the, the, the strength needed for that, Mm -hmm. you know, like, it's just so, it just, and of course she, she, she likes to, she's a fast spinner too. So she, (laughs) she, um, it's because, you know, it's also Swan Lake. The ballet is obviously, and the orchestra has performed it many, many times. Mm-hmm. So they have an idea of the range of tempi. And so mm-hmm. when I first did Sasha's tempo, you know, they're just like, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> really fast. This yeah. is really fast. And I'm like, no, 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 seriously. This is what she wants. And it's so exciting, you know. Um, and uh, um, oh. I just, you know, I have the utmost respect for her because, again, she is such she is always in it, you know, during this pandemic, you know, just, she's like, listen, I just, if I got sick and I had to miss some of the season that we're performing, I just don't, I would, it would be devastating. Yeah. So I'm just going to focus on, you know, being in the studio, being careful as possible, really trying to ensure that I have all the opportunities in this short career that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, we have, that we're lucky to have. Right. And so, you know, um, yeah, I just, I, I love her so much. She's just, we've done so many collaborations and, you know, to do Swan Lake, which meant, which means so much to her, it means so much to us. Um, it was just, it was great to be like actual partners, you know, yeah. uh, and to be part of that as well, you know, like as tight as like Valentina or Stravinsky or whatnot, just felt right. like we were working together, trying to collaborate in a much more intimate way than just like, hey, was the tempo okay? Oh, no. Right. Well, let me <laughs> yeah. try to, you know, you know, um, how about it? Whatever. Um, but um, yeah, she's great. Collaboration continues, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it was a premiere for a lot of them because, you know, uh, um, yeah, we had four, four couples this time. And so, uh, yeah, it was fun. Um, I love that. What a, what a, like a perfect way to end this because it's like that, that we all rely on one another so much in what we do. And it's not just, um, an independent operation, you know, all, all of these things would fall apart if they didn't have the other collaborators on board. So yeah. yeah, and just like we were talking about Stravinsky and Balanchine, it's like so much richer and it's so much more satisfying experience when you see the fruits of the collaboration that they were so you know um, tight and had respect for each other. And you know, oftentimes, sometimes, and I'm sure on stage, some, some dancers get worried about the music or the musicians. The stereotype is just like, oh, the dancers are like you know messing around with the tempi and whatnot. But likewise. Mm-hmm when you have uh, when you're working on the same page and you're collaborating and you're really trying to um, work together through the process, I think that the results um, it's a higher potential for these really satisfying um, um, performances. 
And so, you know, that was a great way to end the season, I think, for us. Um, I see Sasha's been posting all her vacation pics. <laughs> <laughs> vacation time. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ming. We really, really appreciate it. We had so much fun last time. We had so much fun this time. We're sure we'll have you back on in the future. Whatever you, you let us know something interesting <laughs> that you'd like to talk about. Yeah. You're here. Always great chatting with you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.